0: Welcome back to the People Data for Good podcast. I'm Al Adamson, and in this episode, I talk with my longtime friend and colleague, Serena Wang. Serena has done extraordinary things over the course of her career. She is not only a practitioner in people analytics, she's an educator, she's an influencer. Her generosity of spirit comes through in this interview. I know it will be both inspiring and informative. Uh, She has a unique background, which has informed her lens by which she views this work. Uh, Again, I can say more, but I'll get out of the way now and let you enjoy the discussion with uh, Serena Wang. Serena, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. How about you, Al?
0: I'm doing great to be talking with you. You're there in Chicago today, yeah? Yes, I am, and yourself? I'm here in Santa Cruz. And I I mean, we've been talking about doing this for quite a while. And you and I have been connected for many years, most recently, through Northwestern's uh, Taureos group. And, you know, you've done some amazing things, including created a course on LinkedIn, and you're at PayPal right now. So if you would, introduce yourself and share a little bit about, you know, your background.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. It's so great to be on the show, and I know you have uh, a huge community. So excited to share a bit more about People Analytics today. Um, Well, I am the head of People Analytics Visualization HR Tech at PayPal. In addition to the world's longest job title, probably, uh, I am also now a LinkedIn learning instructor of a brand new course called The Data Science of Using People Analytics. And I have been accepted into the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator program. So uh, two more things (laughs) uh, to to add to the day job. It's been really exciting. Um, Gosh, I would say what got me here is just a sense of curiosity, and I, I've always loved the combination of human capital and data analytics. Um, that's kind of how I got into people analytics. Um, some of you who have been following me might know that economics is my background. You may not know, though, that I specialize in labor economics, which is the economics related to people. Um, so I spent a few years in consulting and when GE had reached out to me about doing something called HR analytics, mind you, this is many years ago, I thought, wow, these are not two words that really go together typically. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I was up for a challenge. I thought, you know, if I didn't like it, I could always go back to consulting. Uh, fast forward many, many years. I have now built people analytics functions from the ground up after GE at Coke Industries, Kraft Heinz, and now at PayPal. So covering lots of different industries and had the pleasure of seeing the uh, function really mature, you know, and initially when I started out, we were doing basic reporting at best. There were some visualizations, some dashboards, and now we have machine learning models. So big difference uh in how we apply data analytics and I'm had such a pleasure learning myself and, uh, you know, traditionally kind of trained in stats. I later learned all the data science and AI and programming and Python on my own. So um, you, you'll probably hear me talk about learning a ton as well in general. Uh, and it's really important to me as a, as a leader in data analytics too
0: well that's uh one of i mean i've had the joy of watching you develop over your career <laughs> and it, there's several adjectives that come to mind and first and foremost you're kind you have a very humanistic approach and you also are creative every time i mm. we talk i'm like are oh, you doing something new or you created <laughs> something you know a new project here so i want to go back up and you know, Find out your inspirations for getting into the field, and you—you you mentioned labor economics. And did you just wake up one day and say, "Hey, this is what you know what I want to do"? So, you know, where did you grow up? You know, what, what's your story?
1: Sure. Um, I, as I think about my story, I, I came to this country. When I was young, I did not speak a word of English. So sort of after middle school, uh, I moved to the Midwest of America, where there was at the time no programs on English as a second language or sort of dropped into public high school. And good luck with that. Um, So my favorite class was actually Spanish. Uh, because unlike all the other classes where I felt like I was really behind, I had to learn a new language and whatever subject was in Spanish, everyone in my class was in the same playing field. <laughs> we were all starting from zero. So that was my favorite class. And, and that's why I speak a little bit of Spanish. And, and I think um, my my memory of that time was that everything was so difficult initially but I took up the challenge to to quickly learn and immerse myself and ask myself how can I quickly get up to speed so um, while other students were you know maybe playing um, I had a lot of studying to do because I was like I said learning a new language um, and then fast forward a few years later um, I was choosing choosing between different majors. I took a ton of classes, and something else about me is I'm very experimental. Um, I like to try new things and then see what I like. Uh, What I found is I learned a lot about what I don't like as well (laughs) along the way. Uh, And I ended up choosing economics as a major because it was a course I absolutely loved. I just loved the professor um, and how applied everything was. And it was sort of like the beauty of combining data and the real world. Um, So I fell in love with economics, believe it or not. Um, and, And later came across uh, labor economics as an elective and absolutely loved the topic around inequality as a concept. Um, And as we had talked about, obviously your traditional gender inequality, but then also the difference between uh, someone who maybe was born in the U.S. and those who were born outside the U.S. and had to learn something new, like myself when I was younger. Um, And I just found the topic fascinating and ended up uh, doing a whole graduate degree uh, and focusing on immigration for my dissertation years later. So that's kind of how I got into labor economics. Um, the funny story is I had actually intended to go into the academia, uh, much nice. like everyone else who went you know, and gone to a Ph.D. program. Um, I graduated soon after the last huge recession, and where all the academic positions were being cut because of budget issues, so I had to be safe right I needed a real job um as these jobs were getting canceled, so I applied pretty wide and ended up really enjoying the consulting interview process I thought oh I could apply data analytics instead of trying to publish and take forever and only maybe my best friends would read my article um, <laughs> I I could actually do this and see the results immediately um, and I kind of told myself you know what I could always go back to teaching um, I definitely have the passion as you can hear and and I never did that however after I've been in uh, the private sector for a little bit my friends in academia would invite me back and say can you come back to campus and and teach these uh, young ones (laughs) a little something that's more practical in addition to the theoretical approach that I teach Uh, so I've always enjoyed going back to campus and hence you know the northwestern event was always such a pleasure Um, and now uh, that's actually one of the reasons why I created a LinkedIn learning course is I realized I could not go to so many campuses I mean this year, uh, I, I've been to Northwestern, of course, uh, Kellogg, um, Wharton, uh, Berkeley, and, and the, the, the list goes on. I'm, I'm starting to have to say, no, you know, find me next year, uh, perhaps we'll have time. So I thought about how do I share knowledge and my passion at scale? Um, something that the students have told me along the way that resonate with them is that I'm able to share real case studies. Mm-hmm. And how does this really work when you go talk to your chief privacy officer about rolling out something in people analytics? What do you need to say? So those are practical examples that you won't find in textbooks. And so my material really supplement the lectures that my friends were giving in the university setting. Uh, and now I'm excited to be able to share that on a platform like LinkedIn with eight hundred and fifty million users. So. It doesn't get more scale, I guess, than that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's super exciting. And you're immensely qualified and you have that inclusive way about you that if I'm listening to you even right now, I'm like, all right, tell me more, tell me more. And you know, if you're exuding that among your learners, then that's you know a fantastic thing to do. So, yeah, there's a couple things that I, I come to mind. And first off, before we get too far down the road on, on people analytics, I want to ask Where did your parents come from? Did they bring you and at what age, what country?
1: Oh, my gosh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, my parents are from Taiwan and uh, uh, they brought me and then they left me here. (laughs) <laughs> so this might, this might need to be a, a whole nother story, but uh, I'll give you the shorter version. Uh, my dad was a visiting scholar and so lots of, lots of PhDs in the family. Uh, so he had an opportunity to take a sabbatical and go to a university. So uh, we came as a family um, and, and we did that for a year. And when we were going to go back, I had actually started to make friends in the U.S., and I told my parents uh, that I wanted to stay. And they said, absolutely not. You know, uh, you can't, you, you're not old enough to drive. You can't take care of yourself. Um, and I was so determined. I had made an argument that I wanted to continue to learn the the culture, the language. I was just getting started. And because I wanted to go to, if not uh, undergrad, at least graduate school in the U.S., I made the argument that. I would be better off and I would have a better chance if I had stayed, uh, and finish all my high school. And again, my dad said, absolutely not. No way. Um, and tried to convince me. So every night we would take a walk after dinner and he would present his arguments. I would present my counter arguments, uh, very data driven as well on success rates of, uh, you know, child immigrants who stay and so on. Uh, and then finally he said, look, this is not happening. You need to come back home. Uh, I can't leave you behind. Uh, so, So he gave me an impossible, he thought, condition. He said, if you can find an American family that I approve in the next seven days, and I'll have to visit their home, you know, talk to them, obviously, who can take you in, then I will agree to let you stay. Uh, mind you that I actually have family on the West Coast in California and I chose not to go that way because I wanted to learn, uh, uh, English language properly. So <laughs> instead of speaking, <laughs> no you know, right. No offense <laughs> to anyone from California. Uh-huh. great, great place. I just came back from there. Um, so then, so then my dad gave me this condition and this was pre Google days, pre iPhone days, right? I literally went to, campus like to libraries to talk to strangers to find friends at my age and ask their parents really network uh, so this is how i learned networking i suppose at a very young age uh, to find help and eventually was able to find uh, a professor at the local university who hosted international students before and that person just left so they had an empty <laughs> bedroom and they had experience and they had you know uh, a nice um and their their daughter was actually my classmate so it didn't get better than that considering I only had seven days so i told my dad i did the impossible you gotta let me stay and he uh, he kept his word he kept his words and uh, that's how i ended up staying in the midwest <laughs> and uh learned a lot that
0: is incredible. So, I mean, just your tenacity and creativity and resilience. I mean, that's that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Now, how yeah. old were you? What, what year were 14. you in high school? You were fourteen.
1: 14. Yeah. Yes, I
0: was too. I, 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 I got to talk to your dad. Where, where's your dad? <laughs> exactly,
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. As a, as
0: a fellow uh, father of a daughter, right? I Can both, you imagine? Both, like, part of me is like, "What were you thinking?" And part of me is like, "You know, congratulations <laughs> for you know trusting and empowering your daughter to you know yeah. take that step." Because I imagine that. Is directly related to the fortitude that you now express, you know, today in, in yeah. your work. So De-
1: definitely, you-, you know, anytime I run into something difficult in people analytics, in sharing data insights that no one wanted to hear, <laughs> I ask myself uh, what that 14-year-old Serena would do, because uh, if I could do it, then I can do it now.
0: Well, I love the, um, you know, the creativity and resourcefulness as well. It's just like, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, tell a 14 year old uh, that, that, you know, go do that, you know, good luck, you know, provide no no resources. And the fact that you were able to deliver on that for yourself, you know, that self advocacy that is, you know, it says a lot about who you are and kind of, uh, at least for me, like. Okay, no wonder you're doing what you're doing, and you know, influencing the way that you are because you do you do have that creativity and resourcefulness. So, you Thank know, with you. that, you, you know, this is in Kansas. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: And then you went to university in Lawrence, yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah,
0: you can tell us about that.
1: Oh, oh gosh! I hope. Listeners like basketball because uh, it's <laughs> definitely in everyone. I was actually
0: hoping. I was <laughs> actually hoping. Were... Right,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's in the water. It's in the air. Uh, it's it's in the blood. <laughs> uh, it's it's just everywhere. Uh, it was amazing to to be in Lawrence. Uh, the campus is obviously gorgeous for anyone who hasn't been there. And uh, like I said, uh, basketball is is everywhere. Um, I I stay there until I joke about how I couldn't finish and leave town until we won a national championship again, <laughs> which we fortunately did. And the town just went wild. Uh, I was already in a PhD program at the time. And I told my advisor, I said, you got to let me go. We won the championship. It's time to graduate now. Um, so, yeah. So I chose to stay at, um, at Kansas for, for my graduate school because I was offered a really amazing scholarship I could not turn down it was literally like take as long as you want we will pay for the tuition give you a stipend you can either be a research assistant or teaching assistant um and i had a advisor who i really enjoy working with um and then i ended up getting a fellowship um a very rare fellowship uh from the sloan foundation that funded my dissertation where i didn't actually have to work um and could just focus on, on writing so um so it was great time i mean you know at the time of course it felt really difficult challenging and uh every day I had to write it seems like uh, uh, i don't know how many thousands of words uh, to to get things done uh but now in hindsight that was simpler times al <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One thing to worry about.
0: Yeah. I'm right. Doing a project and just get that done and, and move on. So you yeah. completed your dissertation and completed your PhD work. What happened then?
1: Um, so I yeah. And you like won I said, your Championship. <laughs> right, right. I got all the t-shirts I I needed. Uh, And by the way, uh, I got more t-shirts earlier this year. As you know, we also won the the NCA this year. Um, So yeah, so I went into consulting, like I said, um, after that, uh, doing labor and employment litigation consulting. So if there's a chance to try out your resilience and your data analytics skills all at the same time, that's probably the job. Uh, So my very first clients in my consulting career were attorneys. So if you thought anyone who was in consulting had a tough client, all my clients were attorneys. So, so, uh, you know, looking at the, the rigor in the analytics we needed to provide because we're essentially, um, you know, could any, anyone on a team could be deposed or we might have to go to court. So you have to have really sound, Analysis that maybe the other side will try to take apart depending on your position. Um, so we had um, we had a lot of fun in the data analytics, but also, gosh, I would say if I were to make a T-shirt for my time in litigation consulting, is uh, people lie and data doesn't. So. Oh. Um, There was a lot of fascinating cases where employees might claim something, and then the data says otherwise, where a manager would claim something, and then the data would say something completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when I started to realize the true power of data. Uh, And it continues today. A lot of work that we do as a team is separating what is noise and what is fact, um, like I said, in litigation consulting setting, uh, the bars are very high and stakes are really high, you know, millions, sometimes billions at stake. Um, but uh, but the same principle applies that data can help you separate what's noise from what's fact. Uh,
0: yeah, that's, that's beautifully said. And I, yeah, I'm yeah, i just uh, going to synthesize that a little bit. And it's like, I had not put words to it in this way but like data have a voice yes and you know, what do we do do we listen to that voice or yes. do we ignore it and obviously we as human beings have the opportunity to contextualize around it but mm-hmm. there is a voice there and that's a beautiful way to put it so now you're in consulting now what firm were you with
1: uh Charles River Associates so they're okay. based out of Boston um, and it was a very you know boutique, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to more general uh, or business consulting. Um, and a couple of years in, I felt like it was a bit too niche uh, mm-hmm. where all the data analysis were very similar, you know, perhaps different type of data, obviously, but very similar themes. And I wanted to learn and grow more. So I was exploring either going to a different practice internally that was in labor, but you know, as a labor economist it was really hard to make the case to to do something else that uh that i may not seem as credible as labor economists and labor uh, so i ended up actually going to deloitte uh, when they were setting up a, um, a kind of swat team i'll call it um focusing on international tax optimization so they had a team of phd economists uh, tax attorneys jds and then mbas uh, and we would uh, worked together to come up with creative plans to structure a company uh, in a different way uh, to optimize their taxes globally. So mm. uh, very different where I got to learn about new data sets, financial statements, that's kind of all I work with for a very long time there um, and away from the people data. So I had to learn a lot of things really fast and certainly got an exposure to different industries Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never forget, uh, the day, you know, of course, this is probably just a typical day, but I remember, uh, on a Friday morning, getting a call saying, Hey, we want to go pitch this client, on um, Monday morning. Um, get on a flight, and in the meantime, uh, get to know everything about this company in a brand new industry you've never heard of, uh, and come up with a proposal that they are going to buy for seven figures. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you know that's uh, that's the kind of environment that um, I feel like we had to learn how to collaborate really effectively because uh, the teams were still lean, lots of smart people, um, but then also quickly figure out who's good at doing what. And in the consulting world, it's also very flat, right? It's not um, kind of hierarchy that you see in corporate world. So it's not clear. It's all up to you to figure out who is good at doing what and and sort of figure it out once you get the project. So. Um, so I think there was a lot of different learnings along the way, in addition to the technical, kind of, you know, forecasting financial data and so on, uh, reading lots and lots of 10Ks <laughs> uh, day in and day out. Um, but, then, but then also the team culture piece and figuring out what works. So um, I always think a lot back to those days when the structure wasn't clear how do I, as a leader, create that clarity that my team members could benefit from? Mm-hmm. Or when do I actually not do that so that intentionally I'm creating an environment for learning um, and organically find out who might be good at something new? And, and so I think back to those days a lot um, when I first became a manager a few years after that.
0: Guys, I mean, creating an environment for learning and to your earlier story, when you were, you know, data, don't lie, people lie. It is the case where that's arguably part of our biggest challenge and opportunity in people analytics is create an environment. For learning and openness to discover, mm-hmm. as opposed to coming in with our mental models, our yes. you know, predetermined you know, yeah. ways of thinking of the world. And hey, you know, this is actually what's happening as opposed to what you thought was happening. And if we're mm-hmm. open to being nudged, then you know, good things, creativity can happen. So yeah, you're at Deloitte and then you know you go to GE and then you have several other roles which lead you into PayPal. So as opposed to like going through each one, yeah, if you don't mind referencing, you know your experiences but i want to talk about workforce planning uh -hmm. when you talk about labor economics uh there is a i don't want to call it a struggle but yeah (laughs) there's a defining of what talent intelligence is Mm vis-a-vis workforce planning vis-a-vis people analytics so you're you're educated and experienced on looking at labor markets and we have external labor markets and Arguably, now we have the means in which to uh, stand up and, and manage internal yes. labor markets or talent markets, and we're all we're doing this at speed. We're doing this at scale. We're trying to do it sustainable ways. So, my pointed question is: If you look at talent market analytics or slash you know, talent intelligence, how does that play vis-a-vis people analytics to you? Is it a subset? Is it distinct? You know, what does that look like?
1: Hmm. I think structurally, um, it can sit in a variety of different places in the organization. Um, I would say the organization needs to figure out what they need from talent intelligence first. Mm -hmm. So in in my experience, it's always been very helpful to get the external market data from this particular group um, Mm -hmm. and potentially even have them focus on specific research that is tied to whether that's a new domain, for example, that the company is expanding into. Think about where crypto was maybe three years ago, right? Um, how how do you find talent? Where do you even go? Which which schools produce some sort of talent that can do any kind of blockchain? Um, we have no idea. And now we have a little bit better sense. Uh, there's still a shortage of talent and, and you know, and. Other topics like diversity, and inclusion. Where can we go to find diverse talent uh, for a particularly difficult-to-fill roles? So I think of those opportunities as um, something that's proper for talent intelligence, and less so for people analytics, unless the people analytics organization is staffed up with those researchers who can mm-hmm. mine the same data and provide the same insights. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other piece that is a bit unique that definitely sits outside of traditional people analytics is um, things like job mapping. Right. Mm -hmm. So especially for executive research. Uh, Now, that said, um, I have actually experimented with uh, creative approaches, speaking of creativity. um, And early on, when I first joined PayPal, um, I have partnered with our executive recruiting team and basically found a way to to provide additional candidates using skills. So uh, I can talk about skills for probably 20 hours itself, mm-hmm. um, but I very much believe in we are now in a place where we need to hire based on skills, we need to promote based on skills I'll go as far as to say that we need to pay based on skills And and companies have very little and very poor quality data on employee skills today. And, and so, so what I brought into the executive recruiting team that complemented their original research was that, hey, there's a lot of candidates who actually have the same skill sets. And maybe I'm using a proxy based on experience. Maybe I'm using their actual skill badges um, on LinkedIn. Maybe something else. Or maybe it's education, right? So it's a combination of those things and surfacing additional candidates that traditionally are not found and and i think there's a future where i can see tighter collaboration between uh the executive recruiting team talent intelligence and people analytics and sourcing candidates um, that better match the qualifications and also think about the potential if you can if you can figure out the adjacent skills or skill sets that are close enough you can expand your talent pool significantly, and if you want diverse talent, guess what? You got to look broader today. Um, so, so I think there's a, a ton of work to be done still. Um, and I, you know, like I said, uh, earlier days when rules and responsibilities were not clear, I always had to figure out who does what. And it's similar uh, with talent intelligence, people analytics. In my mind, we need to use our strengths and. And if my team is better at uh, working through the data manipulation um, and creating maybe a product that surface insights, then let us do that. Um, If the talent intelligence team is better at looking at external research data, uh, let them do that. But if we have economists on the team who is actually experts at looking at difficult data like census, for example, then let us do that, even though we are not talent intelligence. So... So I very much focus on skills and relative strengths, especially when when we're talking about these potential um, overlap or close disciplines. And I look for opportunities to collaborate where data can add value.
0: Well, you know, th- thank you for sharing that because that is um, beautifully put. And some questions come to mind because you were talking about people analytics and talent intelligence being effectively two separate groups do you uh, see a world where those groups are either part of one kind of center of excellence or center of expertise or do you think there's value in them remaining separate before i let you respond what i've seen is talent intelligence folks sometimes living in real estate, sometimes living in talent acquisition, and then people analytics and HR operations over here. And there's some like overlap, particularly when you have the internal people analytics team focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion internal mobility. And, you know, there needs to be to your point, some relationship between the two. But You know, is your agenda, whether it be in your current role or maybe aspirationally, would you like to see them closer together as separate or would you like to see them together? What are your thoughts there?
1: I would definitely like to see them closer together. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it's necessary in the same group. However, I I would say personally, and this is only my practice, not saying everyone should consider it, I I do invite the talent intelligence team and I consider them our cousins Mm -hmm. uh, to all my team meetings and all the learning sessions where we are exchanging knowledge. Um, and we're starting to see that there's some skills overlap. Uh, for example, uh, we found that there's you know an analyst in teleintelligence who knows um, a lot of technical skills and wants to learn from others. so then if they stay only within their bubble they can't learn from others because they are essentially the most technical person however, if they chat with my team members, then you know they, they get to nerd out together. So I try to create those opportunities where people are learning and growing, whether it's technical or business skill sets that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think there's um, just opportunity to think about just the data itself. Right? how do you P- how can you create a workforce plan without internal and external data? You can't. So put Thank very you. simply. <laughs> put very <laughs> simply. You, <laughs> so so then how how do you facilitate that inflow, right? And sort of who does what? Then you have workforce planning folks who might be um, trying to gather this external data from someone and internal data from someone else. Um, and then maybe maybe someone needs to do the mapping, right? For example. How many, a simple question like how many data scientists are there externally in Chicago? What what counts as a data scientist? What counts as a data scientist internally? What level is that? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are lots of questions where, um, in my experience, I just I, I just pulled a team together. We got workforce planning folks, we got talent intelligence, and then my team members. Um, and we chat about what makes sense for each team member to do. Mm-hmm. on specific projects. So like workforce planning, for example, uh, it really depends on the, the source data that we're using. Um, sometimes the talent intelligence team is sh- a true expert in, in the data they're looking at. Then we stay out of their way and say we will supply um, the internal data. And then we'll kind of double you know, cross-check um, and make sure we're talking apples to apples. Um, other times we might be equally familiar because it's a subscription that both teams have or that I'm sharing with the other team. Then we can decide who has more time. So so yeah. then we'll, we'll take it on. Um, and then in advising the workforce planning team, again, using our relative strengths, uh, we really advise on things like predictive attrition for in, for instance uh, so if you're using simple modeling and we have a model that's much more um, accurate call it not necessarily advanced but more accurate then let us provide you with the model um, output so that you can forecast um, in and you know um, the next few years or whatever time frame that makes sense so so it's a collaborative effort um, And I I would say that I learned a lot about people uh, along along this way, too, because it's not everyone's cup of tea, this uh, lack of clarity. Um, and having to figure out what everyone does, where it might be a little bit different from one project to another. Um, it takes some flexibility that uh, that I think, well, you know, you would think two and a half years later uh, into the pandemic, we now all have become very flexible. But some of us are also very tired of change. So I, yeah. I totally get it. Um, but yeah, in my mind, that workforce planning is, um, so, so important. And a lot of organizations are just getting started. Uh, you really, back to our earlier point, need both internal and external data to make it work.
0: Well, yeah, again, yeah, I'm, you're getting me all excited because you said a couple of things that I, I want to uh, get into a little bit more. And, you know, particularly if I'm listening and I'm thinking about my role in my organization. You know, I could be in people analytics, I could be a CHRO head of talent, I could be in workforce planning, and then there's talent intelligence. So my pointed question is what's the distinction that you and your organization make between talent intelligence, workforce planning, and people analytics?
1: For us, there are three different teams um, that collaborate together on certain projects. Um, I think the talent i would say people analytics full spectrum you know from reporting all the way to advanced analytics when it comes to people related decisions hmm. um, talent talent intelligence uh, focuses more on external market signals that can be brought in to make important decisions too for example location strategy. I would say location strategy is probably one of those projects that the three groups partner really closely together um, where workforce planning, uh, talent intelligence, and people analytics all have all have a piece of the pie or puzzle. And, um, and we figure out recommendations for the organization on where to go next for talent. Uh, where can we stay competitive? And so as you think about the external talent data, it's not just availability of data. It's also things like the cost of labor in different places it's the difficulty of doing business um, and sometimes we partner we sort of help create an index if you will of um, as we're ranking location strategy so we sort of provide that thought leadership on um on, okay you have all this external data there are 20 factors uh, are they all the same which one's more important um, and we partner together to to make that happen and make the recommendations um, and then workforce planners will you know sort of help now we have the supply of, of talent uh, and then we have the demand for talent uh, figure out the gap analysis and make recommendations on what's next so um yeah it's it's definitely not perfect or easy i, w- I would not say uh, but it's been a ton of um, Good challenges for for us to learn on um, how to collaborate with each other. And if anyone has figured out the perfect model, please give me a call.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, to your point, I mean, just our, you know, I think about the talent intelligence labor market space. Uh, you know, it's been around for eons, and it's, yes. it's yeah. however, the uh, ability, uh, meaning the number of data sources and the speed in which that. Uh, insight can be surfaced is truly somewhat revolutionary over the past 10 years and really over the past five. It's been right. pretty extraordinary. And there's a host of products and solutions out there that are laying evidence to this. And there's a lot of money going in the space. So my, um, a couple of quick questions, because we could talk about this topic for the rest of the day. And I, I want yeah. to get to some other things, particularly about the future of people analytics and workforce strategy and workplace strategy. But it's this, is that what is the governance among those three? Is there formal governance, or is just the leaders of those teams having the willingness and ability to collaborate mm-hmm. are you all within h r what does that look like
1: yeah so we we're all within h r and then we connect with each other regularly um mm-hmm. so it's sort of an informal um structure, but I would say. Because we have um very strong project management teams for every project that we kick off, we do talk about that roles and responsibility with Racy uh, upfront to to see you know who makes the calls, um and so that it's at least clear, um especially if we need to switch out you know team members like someone goes on vacation, uh we're not having this conversation over and over again, um yeah. yeah.
0: And do you, this is a bit of a sidebar, but related. Do you have a set of deliverables that you contribute your to your quarterly business reviews?
1: Oh, uh, gosh. So we provide... Yes, and then sort of depends <laughs> on, <laughs> on the business. So, um, so of course, our, our business does the review with uh, with our CEO, and we have over time provided various uh, suites of dashboards focusing um, focusing on different components. So we call it um, Org Health, <laughs> mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and it's really giving you a sense of how healthy is your workforce uh, internally. But we've started to this year bringing in external benchmark as well on things like attrition. So we know how we're doing Um, and that's been well received. And and I think um, the reason we provide that, Dashboard uh, to to enable self service is not because we don't want to uh, provide manual data. You know, obviously that's huge Mm -hmm. plus. But also, everyone looks for every business might have a different focus on their talent strategy, on their workforce strategy, and and so perhaps diversity inclusion is something that is the most important, or perhaps it's something else. So we don't determine. What those most important metrics are for them, and just rearrange the scorecard every month or every quarter. Uh, but they get to decide, and we just plot, provide a scaled platform uh, where they can find that information. Um, I do, you know, I do hope to get to a place where that organizational health is a bit more standardized, uh, mm-hmm. where we talk about things like spans and layers and um, and location footprint and things like that on a on a regular basis. So I I do think we are. Are working towards a standard view after several months of uh, debating what is more important and kind of just in the meantime as I look uh you can you can find what's most important to you um but let us know what's important so that maybe we can create a view that works for most people uh, and then we can standardize going forward so
0: got it yeah, yeah that's um it's. You're getting a, an executive team aligned on what's important. <laughs> right. And you know it's obviously a challenge in and of itself. And if you're having an organizational health dashboard, I don't yes. know if you, you determine it as that. I mean, that's a very good place to be, relatively speaking, because many are still, you know, yeah. guessing. And even if you don't have, you know, perfect understanding of what organizational health looks like, you right. know, having something is better than nothing, arguably. And that's what I'm hearing that you Definitely. all are doing. You know, you know, there, there's a couple of things that I want to ask about, and then I want to get to some rapid fire questions. But before this, you know, I mentioned workforce strategy or work Place strategy, and we, we've we've touched on this, but you know, as we go into 2023, and we're thinking about the future of work, and you know, different ways to structure an organization, you know, org design, and the use of contingent labor, outsource providers, this whole ecosystem in which work can get done. You know, what's top of mind, particularly with the role of People Analytics in informing what's possible. So, how do you create space? You mentioned at the outset, you know, a space for learning. How do you do that? You know, what does that look like from a like meeting rhythm? Like who's your audience to consider these ideas, consider the data and insights that you're producing?
1: Yeah, so definitely our HR leadership team. Um, I, I think that's a really critical audience. And then we have um, certain business leaders who are just really interested in people analytics and they are champions of our work. Um, uh, and they find us when when, they, uh, when they're curious about something new or maybe a report they have seen on, on the topic. So, uh, so it kind of goes both ways. Um, I would say that upscaling is certainly on a lot of leaders' mind. Going into a more difficult economic downturn with a lot of uncertainties, um, it's on a lot of people's minds on how do we, if we are unable to, let's say, backfill as quickly as before or backfill every single role as before, um, or if the market becomes even tighter and we can't find the talent we need quickly, how do we upscale our internal talent to be able to do some of that? So kind of going to the buy versus build um, strategy. But then now we have lots of options, right? We have buy, build, we have bots. How do you think about automation uh, to help with some of that? So those are regular conversations uh, that for, you know, I think people in analytics needs to help organizations think about it's not just backfill. It's not just your attrition rate, but as you are thinking about that role, what does it do and how can automation help with some of it? Is it, your, you know, if we can backfill with, um, uh, with a different level of role or in a different location, perhaps that can save the company a lot of money if you get the automation to work, to remove all the manual tasks. So, so it definitely requires a different kind of rigor that we may not always have. Um, and, and I don't think we can have on um, every single role. That's always my reminder to everyone who's getting started in workforce planning or skills, Just don't boil the ocean. If you're mm-hmm. trying to workforce plan every single job at your company, Forget it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't, right? So, yeah. So you can't. You want to boil down your your you know jobs to skills and then maybe even to tasks. Ultimately, sure, that all sounds good. But let's not do that for two thousand jobs because it won't be feasible. Uh, focus on the critical ones, the ones that are either impacting your top line or bottom line. Um, can you, If you get this workforce planning right for this particular role or set of roles, are you going to make more money either by generating more revenue or saving more cost uh, or somehow increasing your market share? Pick one. But right. if it doesn't impact your business metric, then I will question the value of doing a long exercise that is very data analytics heavy uh, and doesn't result in ROI quickly. Um, yeah. So that that would be my reminder. Um, definitely don't boil the ocean, uh, pick something that has business impact for sure to get started.
0: Well, a couple more quick questions uh, then we'll uh, start to wrap here. Uh, just before we leave that topic, What's the frequency in which you have those types of discussions? Is it like once a month? Is it once a quarter? Is it once a year? Like when you're looking at the ecosystem of how work can get done?
1: Oh. There's an ideal way I would say I want to do that, and then there's the reality as well. Yeah. So uh, I would say I, ideally I would recommend at least twice a year, uh, if not four times a year. Uh, quarterly would be ideal, uh, depending on the size of the organization. Some of the metrics may not change that quickly, um, you know. So if it's a also very stable industry, uh, for us we have been going through um, a huge transformation. So it's been a little bit more frequent so sort of after um, a big change has come or we are expanding to a new business and and those are kind of the moments uh, where we have to have in real-time conversations about what does the talent look like and how can we where can we go after this and how can we quickly fill you know these um, a, a new office that we' we're, we're expanding into and so on so so I think for us uh, this year has been unique uh, but generally definitely recommend uh, two to four times a year it would be a good rhythm
0: I love it so, what excites you about the space moving forward? Yeah, you know, or or concerns you?
1: Oh, uh, gosh, a lot. Um, <laughs> I I wish there were more people analytics professionals to to do the work. Um, I. I've been on a journey to get other analytics professionals to join People Analytics, just as a uh, secret passion. <laughs> well, I guess no longer secret. Uh, but I've hired uh, internally uh, actually a couple of people from our finance group and uh, just uh, show them how cool People Analytics is. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think I'll continue to to certainly do that. Where I'm very interested in building a collaboration model with other analytics organizations. Uh, both internally and externally, because I think there's so much we can learn from each other. Um, Think about marketing and customer analytics and that parallel with people analytics. There's so much that we can learn from each other um, and potentially even tie the data together. Um, to see whether or not things like employee experience impacts customer experience and so on, so uh, very much looking forward to that. Um, I would say you know you can probably tell from all my LinkedIn posts, uh, employee well-being and health is very important to me. Uh, coming out of the pandemic, uh, certainly have seen firsthand uh, from many people I've talked to, it's top of mind, and there's a lot that data analysis can help with. Um, But if you don't have data, also, don't get discouraged. <laughs> There's a lot that you can do, um, and just being more human um, to to your team members and and show up at work and and all all the things that are free, like being vulnerable, right? Being being authentic, um, being inclusive. That doesn't cost anything, and um, and it's great to to practice. and um, And I think those are key ways that we can really improve the employee experience. It's it's not about getting a better laptop it's it's these human connection moments and and creating more of them and making them better
0: yeah no i beautifully said and yes employee well-being and creating more inclusive environments i couldn't celebrate more and we have a unique role in our discipline to to shed light on not only what's happening but what will help improve these outcomes so yeah thank you for your passion there as well as you know doing the work and so yeah may we continue on that journey together so you ready for some rapid fire questions as we start to wrap
1: sure let's do it
0: all right uh favorite genre of music jazz jazz nice what type of jazz or just all jazz
1: Oh my gosh, actually kind of all jazz, uh, but there they are a couple clubs in um, Chicago that I really like and, and one I've supported throughout the pandemic by making donations to their uh, virtual uh, concert. So, um, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I know what we're doing next time I'm in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> all right. Um, who are professionally... Uh and it could be personally as well, but I'm really curious professionally, who has been uh an inspiration to you either going back years or or currently?
1: Um oh, definitely my graduate school um advisor, Donna Ginther. Uh she was just a trailblazer, uh, and even years ago there were almost no women in uh, economics, and she was able to show me how wonderful data analytics can be in applying to useful research like uh, gender e- equality, and really advancing, um, advancing that, that cause. So um, still, yeah, still very much um, uh, think of our time <laughs> together, and, uh, and all the encouragement she has given me o- over the years.
0: Uh, fantastic, thanks for sharing that and uh what do you do for fun?
1: I stay very active, <laughs> so yeah. I uh, you know continue to learn a lot of new things uh tennis, golf are on my current list uh not very good at either yet, but that's okay uh and yeah, yoga uh if it's too cold outside so
0: <laughs> all right, this one uh, is a toss up. So thank you for sharing about, you know, your interest. So, if you are going to advise someone to learn about people analytics or workforce planning or talent intelligence, what would you recommend? Or do you want me to answer that?
1: <laughs> I think you should answer that and then I can go.
0: <laughs> well, I, they're just LinkedIn course that I'm yes. aware
1: of.
0: <laughs> uh, no, I'll let you say. So you, you yeah. just tee up your LinkedIn no, course. No, for
1: sure. Yeah. yeah. So for sure, check out the data science of using people analytics. Uh, it's actually been selected to be part of a really special new learning path called Future Proving Your Organization. So it's free until the end of November. So check it out, now is your time, and then tell me what you will like me to do for the next course, because uh, I love to do a continuous series on people analytics and just bringing what's new, what's relevant uh, to the world continuously. And certainly follow me on LinkedIn and check out my newsletter um, as well, I'll continue to share insights.
0: All right. Well, Serena, thank you for sharing again. <laughs> thank you for being who you are and your commitment to not only people analytics, but to well-being and inclusion and equity. And just uh, it's fabulous getting to know you over the years. And you know, yet again, I appreciate you sharing with me and our audience and uh, you, you be well. And I'll see you there in Chicago. Um, if not before the end of the year, then certainly early part of next. All right.
1: Sounds good. Thank you all.
0: All right. You be well. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about today's guests, go to pafal.net. You'll be able to see links to the bio as well as to the video of today's program. You'll also have the chance to support this podcast and other shows that we do by becoming a Pafal community member. You can also donate if you choose. What will be helpful to support Pafal, the People Data for Good Movement, and me will be to share this episode with friends, co-workers, and others who might find it valuable. Uh, finally, for updates on upcoming episodes, shows, and events, please subscribe to our newsletter at Pafal.net. At the bottom, you can also see our social media presence. So, please subscribe to our company page on LinkedIn, follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and instagram we're active as can be and we want to provide this content to you that is timely relevant and actionable so again thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon i also want to give a shout out to jenna dern malaz el sheik and sarah sparnan who without them this show would not happen and now go out and make some great things happen